Welcome to Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawks. And in Series 1 of Trailblazers, we talked to legends like Mary Ann Hobbs, Gary Newman, Fatboy Slim and Goldie. Go to Deezer.com for full interviews or, of course, subscribe to Trailblazers via your usual provider. That's right. And Trailblazers is all about celebrating the, the very finest electronic music pioneers and game changers and visionaries. And uh, in this episode, uh, not so much an electronic music pioneer, so it's, it's a little bit off-piste, but absolutely a don, a game changer and an absolute legend, David Rodigan. How exciting was it to get David into the studio? Well, I mean, even more exciting for you, given that he's one of your absolute heroes, you know, and a man that that made you the man that you are, (laughs) the excellent man that you are. But but for me, you know, he is a real proper legend. And, you know, I only got to see him uh, for the first time at Secret Garden Party, which is something that we talked about very interestingly uh, in it. But, um, yeah, what what an incredible treat you're going to have. I think that of all of the ones that, uh, all of the luminaries that we've talked to, the depth of storytelling alone, if it was a competition, David would win. Amazing. Let's go. Deezer Originals Trailblazers David Rodigan Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire, invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtracked their fascinating lives. This week's fire starter is a living legend of the airwaves, a man directly responsible for bringing reggae and dancehall music to the masses via at least six radio stations. A curator and collector and selector, and that selector with an A, extraordinaire. A DJ and storyteller, and the only man I've ever seen that combines those two usually disparate arts. Such a legend, in fact, that Andy Roberts, the famed boss of Kiss FM, is more famous than for anything else he's ever done as the man who let go of David Rodigan. David Rodigan, MBE. Welcome to Trailblazers. Eddie, my head is swelling, as Burning Spear would say. It's a lucky thing I never got swell-headed. But I'm afraid my head is swelling. I may have difficulty getting out of this studio. Or, what a big up. Or, or getting into that, as our mutual friend uh, Liam Howlett actually said of me. I, I'm going to deflect this quote to you. He wears a good hat. Your, your, head, your head might fit. That's that stupendous hat that you're, uh, that you're normally wearing in, your, in your press shot. Let them wear it. Yeah, he wears a good hat. But isn't it funny, the, the hat, and people say, why do you wear a hat? Well, I don't always wear a hat, but I do often wear a hat because it's that thing of um, the characterization that you slightly become somebody else when you go onto a stage, especially when a big festival, and um, you are slightly conspicuous by the fact that I look like a dentist or an accountant, um, you know, or, or a school teacher, because um, I, I have been often described as looking like that. So a hat, it's a bit like, a, you know, in theatre terms, a mask. It just gives you a different look. So thank you to Liam for referring... Referring to my hats? Uh, no, you're actually your referring hats? to my hat, but I'm okay. deflecting it to you. Okay. <laughs> well, I, think well, you wear the, I think you wear the hat even better. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, oh, yes. but um, yeah, it, it, so it, it's a, 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 an addendum to my costume. Mm. So, no, you mentioned theatre. I'm sorry, Nick, because mm. normally um, Nick will, will chime in with the first question, but you, you said the word theatre there in our uh, little exchange there. Mm. And I happen to know just from, because of our failing tr- public transport system, Nick was a little bit late, so I got to chat to you just before we started rolling and you told me that you 
you wanted to you started off wanting to be an actor yeah I, my ambition was to be working either at the national um, on the South Bank or ultimately the Royal Shakespeare Company and I trained to be an actor having studied economics for a year and just couldn't take it and uh, and I my first job was at the the, the Little Theatre in St. Martin's Lane. It was a lunchtime show. It was a solo dramatization of the Yevtushenko poem, Zimmer Junction. And he eventually came to see it from Russia. And that was my first job. And then my second job was uh, working as an ASM. That's an actor stage manager, enabling me to play a gorilla in the little hut in my first production at Mansfield <laughs> Civic Theatre, followed by other performances at Rotherham Civic Theatre, Bradford Library, the Alhambra stop. Um, but the idea was, of course, was that you were an acting ASM in that you were a allowed to act but essentially you were a stage manager but you had small parts and eventually got bigger parts and that's really all I wanted to do but I also was an avid collector of West Indian recordings 7 inch and 12 inch and well later 12 inch and albums and I, I was fascinated by this music but yes uh, what I wanted to be and what I was for many many years was an actor in the theatre and, um, and a bit of telly. And I nearly became a household name because I auditioned for, if you think about Coronation Street, um, the girl that's married to the guy that runs the garage, is it Gail? Um, anyway, I, this was years ago, but I auditioned to be her mother's boyfriend. I haven't seen Coronation Street since Elsie Tanner was in it, but, um, and I almost got the part. <laughs> and uh, it was down to me and another guy. And... Uh, he got it and I didn't because uh, I'd been working on Doctor Who as I'd done t Trial of the Time Lords and uh, of the Time Lord, singular. And uh, then I, from that I was working on Sherlock Holmes and they built Baker Street on the other side of Coronation Street at Granada. So somehow, some way, I managed to get an audition for Coronation Street. So I, I, I sometimes think if, if I'd taken, if I'd got that part... You would have been a lovey and not a yardie. <laughs> oh, absolutely brilliant. A lovey and not a yardie. Brilliant. <laughs> Forgive me. No, it's priceless. I'll use it. I'll send you a check for usage, Eddie. You can have that for free out of genuine respect. <laughs> so, no, so uh, Nick, do you, want to, um, do you want to get things started officially? I, I will in, indeed. Fantastic to have you here, David. And, um, and the first thing is, Eddie made a brief um, sort of reference to the fact that I was a bit delayed and I've got to just mention why that was. I was standing at the tube station in West London and it was signal failure of all things. <laughs> on, how ironic is that when I'm en route to meet Give David me Rodigan? <laughs> Give me some signal. That's what I was thinking, standing on the... On Isn't the... that bizarre? Because I don't know where that s phrase came from. It came from somewhere mm. and I didn't realise how it had impacted until uh, Charlotte, who was my producer at Kiss FM back in the day, yeah. came to Bestival or one of those events <coughs> yeah. And she was staying in a hotel nearby. And she said, David, when I went back to my hotel that night, there were a bunch of students and, you know, kind of lads having a good time. And they were all trying to do impressions of you saying, give me some signal. So <laughs> how about, and I realised, oh, give me some signal. Give me some signal. And then we got the T-shirts made. Amazing, amazing. So I've seen you play several times over the years and reasonably recently I was at a, a festival in Spain and it was 5am and you were on stage and you were bouncing around like a 
16-year-old playing at their first rave. So my question was going to be, where do you get the energy from? Do you know, I've been asked that question many times and I actually don't know. I think it's just the fact that I still get turned on by the music. It generates so much excitement in me that when I was in my bedroom in a little village in Oxfordshire, I'd jump around to this beat because I just loved the crazy backbeat. It was so nuts. Scar just drove me insane because I just loved the energy. I, I used to, you know, lunch times at school trying to do rim shots, scar rim shots on, on the orchestra drum kit. So getting on stage, it's impossible for me to just stand there and play the records. I, I just can't contain myself. And so I'm a jack in the box. Mm. And next thing I know, I've broken the barrier and gone around the other side. Yeah. Um, as, as Wes said from Diplo, said to me, you know you do it all back to front, don't you? I said, yeah, but I can't, you know, that's the only way I, I can't. What did he mean by back to front? Well, the, the, I stand at the front. Yes, and, and you, you, the, the crowd see your back when yeah. you... When yeah. You, and, yeah, exactly. But I remember the DJ at that. Um, but you don't have the barrier between you and the crowd. This is the interesting no, thing. That's right. So the, the mixing desk is gone. Yes. Um, it's just you and the crowd. Yeah, and you can directly relate to them, and, and it seems to work. You know, I, oh, I, it most definitely works. What I want to know about that particular set and, and any other set that uh, you would go on at 5 a.m. is that are you staying up or getting up? At, are you getting up? Is that the first oh, thing up. you do or is the last thing you do? No, I, I, I sleep before those gigs. I always have a disco nap. You know, I'll, I'll eat early, um, especially if I'm abroad. I'll eat early and then I'll go and get a disco nap. As long as I get an hour and 90 minutes, you know, with the Charles could... Dickens to send me off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you read a bit of Charles Dickens? Oh, well, I'm at, yeah, I'm a big Before fan. Before smashing up a big rave. <laughs> 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 Amazing! It's so not I just tailor, tailor two cities. Okay, and I've, I'm currently doing the old Curiosity Shop. Okay, and um, I'm working my way through. Yeah, I, I'm I'm an avid um, fan. Ah, okay. and I'm also reading because I like to hitch and switch. You know, yeah. I'm also reading Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca. Remember the film? I do. Uh, Laurence Olivier was in the classic film, so yeah. reading the book, books infinitely better than the film. Amazing. So yeah, um, and Thomas Hardy's my favourite. You know. Far from the Madding Crowd is my favourite novel. Right, and then you so, head into the Madding Crowd. Yeah, and, and, and isn't it funny because um, it's the cheapest form of travel, reading. Yep. And I always remember years ago, I went to Jamaica, Montego Bay, to do World Clash. Uh, you know, it's, 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 that's the hardest thing you can possibly go into. And um, I was there a day early because I'd come in from shows in America and was relaxing on the beach. I wanted to be away from the crowd. And so I found this one little sunbed right down the end of the beach under a palm tree. And I was taking my jacket off and I said, oh, far from the madding crowd. And the Jamaican security guard with his baseball cap on looking like, you know, tough guy said, Thomas Hardy's best, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and I turned up... <laughs> I said, sorry. I said, Thomas Hardy, I'm a big fan. I've, I've read most of his works. <laughs> and I then began a long conversation over two days with this young man who was an ardent literature fan. Mm. Uh, fan's the wrong word, but mm. an ardent lover of literature. Mm. And he was studying at Cornwall College. And um, he's uh, lived in his sister's apartment because his parents had broken up and his father had died. It was a tragic life that he'd lived. So, and he was still so young. But his love and passion of literature, for literature, uh, enabled him to continue studying. And he was working daytimes um, and whatever shifts he could to earn the money to pay for his college fees at Cornwall College in, in Montego Bay in, Kingston, in, in Jamaica. Yeah. It just goes to show you what you can do if you have that burning desire. And I'll never forget that moment. One of his finest novels, I think. Amazing. And, and in a Jamaican accent. Oh, that's so poetic, because you must have obviously looked at him and thought all my stereotypes are shattering, and he must have looked at you and thought exactly the no, same thing. No, because he didn't know who I was. 
Oh, so when he found out who I was, he fell apart. Yeah. He couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> For the same thing. So like... you kill people and you murder people and your boss, your boss. <laughs> and he's giving me all this. Yeah. You're some killer, innit? Yeah. <laughs> them fear you, them fear you. But you've, you've had this kind of thing, situation happen before, haven't you? Where people have uh, been astonished that, to discover that you're white, for one thing, right? When, when in Jamaica, am I, am I right? Oh, absolutely. Um, um, when I first did shows in Jamaica, the first baptism of fire was 1983 with Barry G, which is my, he was my opposite number. He was a household name in Jamaica. I mean, in, television's big in this country, but in Jamaica... It's radio, because mm. a lot of places can't get television reception. But radio is king in Jamaica. And Barry Gordon was a household name. So in 1983, I was doing these shows with him, which were being broadcast on Capital Radio and JBC in Jamaica. And then he said, let's do a live show. And we did a live show at the New Kingston Drive-In. as a drive-in cinema. And obviously it was open air, and there were thousands of Jamaicans there. It was my first ever show in Kingston. And he said, yes, ladies and gentlemen, you've been hearing him on the radio. Here he is from England the first time. David Rodigan. And cheers. And I walked out onto the stage. <laughs> deafening silence descended over the crowd. As you saw thousands of black people go... He's <laughs> a white man. His dentist is yeah, here. He's, yeah. he's, he's a reggae he, dentist. Or he sent his accountant on yeah. stage first yeah. to collect the fee, yeah. perhaps. And, I and, and I signed on with the Gregory Isaacs dub plate, and the place went nuts. Yes, of course. And and that happened again, you know, the famous one was in Maypen, in, in Bamboo Lawn in Maypen with Bodyguard. And the, the thing was that Jamaica's a forthright, uh, a bit like Yorkshiremen, you know, they, they are absolutely forthright. They will speak it as it is. And, of course, originally... BBC Radio London, on more than one occasion in the initial few months when I was there, producers would come into the office at the BBC to and walk back out again. <clears throat> right. I just think you were an engineer or yeah. something. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking for David Rodgers. Well, yeah, when you office. fix this, can You're, you tell me where David is? Yeah. I can imagine. Because really they, thought I was, they thought I was black. Mm. Of course. Oh, my gosh. Well, well, should we rewind the clock right yeah, back absolutely. to the beginning? So, so where did it all start for you? I, I only found out today that you were born in Germany. Yeah, my father was in the British Army. I was going to uh, say, must have been. You yeah, know. so after the war, he was stationed there with obviously my mother, and I was born in 1951 in BMH, as they say, British Military Hospital in Hanover, as was my sister. Mm. And uh, we, we was, he was stationed there, and his next posting was to North Africa, to Libya. To, uh, not, we didn't go to Tobruk, we were in Derna and, and Tripoli. So I didn't come to England until I think I was seven or eight because I remember flying over England and asking, I was situate, sit, seated next to some old colonel um, and my father kept found it very funny because I was pestering this colonel. And because I was a little boy, the, the colonel, of course, had to ask, you know, he was being polite, but he, he, and I said that, that man didn't want to talk to anybody because he was, and I remember asking the colonel, I said, what are all those green squares, sir? And he said, oh, they're fields, dear boy. Because <laughs> I'd never seen fields. I'd wow. only seen desert. Wow, wow. I'll never forget that, coming into England, so flying must, over. So you must have moved around a lot. Army brats are always just moving. So yeah. It, 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 um, well, we, they, well, to be honest, my father finished his 22 years in Oxford. So I, I was educated. My final years of education were in Oxford, and then they moved to a village in Oxfordshire from, hmm. from the city of Oxford, from Headington. So I, as a teenager, I grew up in Oxford. 
Okay, so that's nice. You did have somewhere that you could uh, yes. kind oh, of abso- have roots yeah. and feel like you know Absolutely. secure. Saw a fake version of the Scatterlights at the Bridge Club in Wheatley. <laughs> if you were at that gig, it was a mug off. You know, <laughs> one of the guys was white and had a wig on. It was ridiculous. <laughs> the Scatterlights in Jamaica. No, what? what? The four-man band. You know, no. So yeah, Oxfordshire, Oxford Town Hall, the Stage Club, the Bridge Club at Wheatley, and um, the. Um, American Air Force Base at Air Force Benson. You go there and see Soul Axe and uh, Gina Washington, the Ram Jam Band, Jimmy wow. Mack, wow. Um, Jimmy James and the Vagabonds. And the thing was about that period, you know, 67 was the golden year for me. I, I just, I can remember everything about 67 like it was yesterday. You know, smoking banana skins and uh, putting aspirin in Pepsi-Cola thinking we were going to get high, you know, just being really sick. And <laughs> experimenting yeah, we believed with everything. Everything we were told. Yeah. Banana absolutely. skins. Well, yeah, it was nuts. Yeah, we did that too. And <laughs> Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Club Scar 67. Those two albums were pivotal because Club Scar 67 was like the This Is Soul album on Atlantic. It was like, if you didn't have This Is Soul, you weren't in with the in crowd. And if you didn't have Club Scar 67, you didn't know what time it was. And and the other side of the coin, of course, was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which for me was just the most amazing. I mean, when that album came out, Bob Baldwin bought it and his parents had gone away. And we spent the night at Bob Baldwin's mother parents' bungalow. And we played Sgt. Pepper's all night until the sun came up. We just kept turning it over and played it all night, smoking banana skins, literally. <laughs> and um, that morning, we all had technical drawing O-level. And we all got really good grades. <laughs> because, you weren't, you, because you weren't stoned. <laughs> you were sober. You we weren't stoned. <laughs> but that was the introduction to, for me, one of the greatest albums. Let's have a piece of music. Shall we? I mean, normally we'd be starting even earlier, though, wouldn't we, Eddie? Shall we? Yeah, but I've got a feeling your first tune that, you, that ever came into your life was How Much Is That Piggy in, Doggy in the yeah, Window? We probably right? don't want to play we, that. But you did ask me. Yeah, 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 we'll push we past push that one. No, I was it's thinking just, they probably won't play this, and I'm so right. It's nice to know. It's but a we terrible don't. song. Yeah, exactly. My mother said I sung it all the time. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. Well, I do remember, but she said I sung it all the time along with Teddy Bear's Picnic. Yeah. Okay. And I used to crawl around because I couldn't walk. I'd crawl around with a drum and I was banging this drum all the time. Amazing. Um, and driving her mad, you know. Okay, How well, much if is we. That doggy in the window. Well, if we go, it's nice to know that, but yeah, we can do without playing it. And then no. go, maybe the first record that we, we should play would be the first one that really. Um, really gave you an emotional kind of uh, response. That has to be Telstar by the Tornadoes. I thought that was the most incredible piece of music. And I did a bit of background on it. And did you know, excuse scuffling mm, of bag, tell us. Yeah, but I did a it. bit of background on it because right. I couldn't, couldn't believe it. That, I mean, I later found out it was produced by Joe Meek, but I didn't know that yeah. at the time. Obviously, I went to the village shop and I had enough money from my pocket money to be able to buy this record. And I brought it home and I played it and I played it and I played it and I played it. I thought it was absolutely incredible. Along with Scarlett O'Hara by Jet Harris and Tony Meehan, um, which there was a breakaway of the shadows. But this song, this piece, Telstar, I later found out it was produced by Joe Meek. And I later found out that the featured instrument was a clavioline, or is that a clavioline? A keyboard with a very distinctive electronic sound, because it is a weird sound on that piece. And I wrote down, when, when reflecting on it, haunting melody and lead guitar, electric organ, the, the flight into cloudburst, then the guitar solo. I felt as though I was in space. Telstar was the first spaceship. 
and it was all about communication, of course, satellite. It was launched in 1962. It was used for uh, communication purposes. And it was as though I was orbiting. It was as though when, when you listened to that, you felt as though you were taking off, that you were about to go into orbit. I know that probably sounds a bit rich, but it was such a different recording. It was incredible how that, just haunted me the way it was arranged the way it was made and of course if you've seen the film about joe meek and everything he did in that little flat above that shop in islington it's quite incredible what he created it really was and, uh, and of course i didn't know that he have i the right to hold you with the girl on the drums yeah you know i always <laughs> come yeah. right back to me this minute <laughs> you know and he produced that you know and heinz and all these kind of weird it was just amazing what that man created. Such a sad tale, but because of his tragic end. But yeah, Telstar by the Tornadoes for me was a very, very special, atmospheric, haunting piece of music. And let's listen to it now. Perfect. Trailblazers. Telstar by the Tornadoes, uh, as picked by uh, David Rodigan. MBE, the most excellent order of the British Empire. So I guess at this point, I, I had to look that up. I didn't really know what MBE stood for. And, uh, but I thought there was, some, there was almost like a poetry there. When did the empire call to you? You know, because your calling came from the empire, if you like. Yeah, I guess it did, because it was Jamaica. Jamaica was part of the empire. And, uh, you know, that's where this music that I fell in love with came from. When was that tipping point? Or when did the spark go to your dry tinderbox? 66, 67, I first heard um, Al Capone by Prince Buster. And it was first played to me by a, a school friend called John Upward, whose brother was the road manager for... The Jimi Hendrix Experience. Wow, OK. He's so got to have some stories. I got yeah. to see them um, at Aylesbury Town Hall and helped Jimmy. I was this far away from him and the other guys, with the roadie, of course, load the stuff into the back of the van. So John Upward was ahead of the curve and he played us this record called O Carolina by the Folks Brothers and Al Capone by Prince Buster's All-Stars and the All-Stars. And I remember that summer specifically hearing those two pieces of music thinking, this is incredible. Um, obviously along with The Who and, and the Jimi Hendrix experience and the Beatles and everything else, but, but this stuff from Jamaica, this stuff from the West Indies, now oh, this was different. And then Guns of Navarone and Phoenix City. Dun, 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 dun. This thing. da 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 like, yeah, the energy was incredible, and of course, all you wanted to do at that age was dance. And you were a, an Oxford, Oxfordshire schoolboy. I at, was, at, yeah, at, in a at village. This time. Yeah, and 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 that's where the spark for my tinderbox was ignited. And I bought Club Scar '67, and I remember um, being—I'd first discovered this music. The real big discovery was Margate Beach, summer of '67. The Beatles were number one with "All You Need Is Love." We had flowers in our hair, and we were sleeping on the beach, and we were experimenting with drugs. And I remember—maybe um, we, we don't need to dwell on that. Um, 
And and I remember... Oh, go on, let's. <laughs> and, of course... I want to hear more about that bit. And we were experimenting with drugs. OK. So smoking some hash and, and getting buzzy and, and yeah. dropping pills and, you know, being able to have the gift of the gab and not being able to do anything with it. But I remember one of the afternoons, it was so hot, and uh, on the promenade, and I revisited it this summer, by the way, it's still there, it's now a Chinese restaurant. Um, above, there was the Grapes Coffee Bar, this is 67. And I noticed a staircase and there was this music coming from it. So I descended the staircase and there was a sign saying Sloopies. We came on the Sloop John B. So there was the yes. Beach Boys connection. There was also a reggae version by Alan the Vibrators. So there was a connection. And I went in and I was literally, I was sucked into this very dark club with the only light came from the jukebox and a red light over the bar. And it was run by two Jamaicans. And I looked at the jukebox and I didn't recognize anything on there. But what I heard was absolutely amazing. It was like, what is this music? And I remember thinking, I played this song called Dancing Mood. I thought it was called I'm Going to the Moon by Leroy Williams. Because when I heard it, that's what I had in my head. So... Later that summer, at a house party in Oxfordshire, I heard the song playing again, having been to Russell Acots and all the shops saying, have you got I'm Going to the Moon by Leroy Williams? No, sorry, it doesn't exist. I don't know what you're talking about. And obviously, I've been smoking too much of the old hash. But the point is that when, when, when I finally heard it playing, and I was upstairs and I, I, uh, in his house party, and I heard it playing, I rushed downstairs to Stephen Pete, Piccolo Pete, and I said, that's it, Leroy Williams going to the moon. You know how I've been spending the whole summer trying to find that record? He said, yeah, it's on this album, Club Scar 67. I said, where is it? There's no Leroy Williams on here. He said, no, it's called Dancing Mood by Delroy Wilson. Yeah. So whatever I had in my head, but that was just one example of, of the addictive quality that this music had. That, and also the fact that you, you would struggle sometimes to understand the linguistics of, of the Jamaican accent. Um, and, but that was me. I was completely hooked. By the summer of 67, there was no turning back. So let's hear one piece of music from that mm. key summer. Which, which track would Al- it be? Let's play Al Capone. By Prince Buster's All Stars. Trailblazers. David Rodigan. Al Capone, guns don't argue. Al Capone, Prince Buster, as chosen by David Rodigan, whose early life we are going through right now. We mentioned you this as being a, a spark to a, to a dry tinderbox, you know, creatively and inspirationally for you. Did you, at that point, start evangelising? I imagine, you know, you had your mates and stuff, your Oxfordshire mates, all white, or I'm guessing, you know, all relatively middle-class Oxfordshire people. Did they kind of uh, join you with, in this enthusiasm or did you, were you kind of on your own? They all did. They all got scar fever, every single one of them. They loved it. And you went to Oxford Town Hall and you went to the clubs, the stage club, and you danced to soul music and you danced to scar. So we were all into it. But when scar changed into Rocksteady in 68, and we noticed the change in 68, it had already started to occur, a lot of my friends said, oh, no, this is too slow. And, and I remember a buddy of mine, Steve Hewitt. Uh, in those days, you could go to listening booths 
and um, in in the record shops. And I remember listening to this rock study with him. He said, "This all sounds the same. Are you still into this stuff?" I said, "No, I am." By then, they'd gone on to Cream and so on and so forth. Um, it's not to say that I didn't appreciate rock music, but. When it changed to rock steady, there was something even sweeter because of the opportunity for the vocalist to really shine and the great bass lines to dominate in a, in a different way to Scar, much slower and cooler. And then, of course, the beat changed again in 68, 69. So, yes, I did very much champion it, um, but a lot of my mates had lost interest. So I became that lone wolf. I was that guy in the bedroom looking out in the backyard to see if anybody else in the other backyards were remotely interested in the fact that I was playing some obscure Derek Morgan record, you know, <laughs> um, because clearly no one was interested. And, and I'm interested to know, when you were going to, to those club events that you were talking about, were you a dancer? Were you out on the dance floor? Oh, big time. Oh, okay. absolutely. Yeah, no, I couldn't contain myself. Great. Although okay. the best dancer... Because I wondered, I wondered if you were the guy who was more like just, just standing next to the DJ all the time. No, no, to... no, no, I was dancing. Oh, good. But the best dancer was Colin Beastly Luca. Yeah. He couldn't dance as good as him, and no one could. But, yeah, no, it was very much about dancing. Good. Absolutely. I'm just trying to picture that. Because it's so long ago and society was so different then. Was the DJ that was playing the music a black guy or was it a white guy? And and what was the the clientele? Because in my mind, I thought that like youth culture, you know, black and white youth culture didn't really kind of merge until, you know, Don Letts came along with, with punk. You know, well, you're right. It didn't. Um, because even in the 70s, there was still, you know, when I first go, went to reggae dances uh, and clubs in, in London in 79, 80, uh, 78, 70, I was often the only white guy in there, or there would be a few others. But, so it was segregated, it was separate. And in 67, 68, um, there was a small black community lived in Cowley. Uh, of West Indians, um, some of whom would come to the clubs, but not many of them. They tended to go to have their own sessions in, in the community centres and so on. I went to a couple of those where there was a predominantly West Indian audience, hmm. uh, people having fun. So where I was going to, there were some black guys, but not many. So it was predominantly a white audience, and the DJ was was white. Yeah. And the DJ, this is the, the very important thing, and I, I, I have to really point this out. The DJ was not considered to be terribly important in those days. Yeah. The DJ was just, who's it? He's the DJ. Yeah. Who's the guy over there? He's just the DJ. Just the DJ. Remember a guy we had, was a place called Brett School of Dancing, where we used to go on Thursdays, and it was only soft drinks, and we were all like 14, 15. And the DJ looked like Elvis Presley. Um, but he was just the DJ who played The Sound of Silence, you know, and Dusty Springfield records and so the Just DJ. about equivalent to or slightly above a member of bar staff yes, almost. absolutely, of no real consequence. Hmm. Was this person being a selector or were they, or did they just have a queue of people just, and were they just like a human jukebox with people asking for requests? So there was a lot of that re- asking for requests. Yeah. There was a lot of that, but... Um, Primarily, they just played hit records. Yeah. And, in, and, and, and in the other clubs, like Stage Club and so on, it was much more soul-orientated. So, you know, it was a pretty obvious selection and it worked because you wanted to hear the hits. And this is the thing I, I say to DJs, you know, it's all very well experimenting with B-sides that you think are pretty deep and heavy. But you try and playing that to a packed house of people who've actually come out to hear hit records. And you must never, ever forget that you, the reason you're there is to actually entertain them, not yourself. Yeah, so absolutely. You're, you're, you're buying the records and you're collecting and you're, you're into the scene and you, you know what it's like to be out on the dance floor. When, at what point did you step behind the, the turntables and 
and play your first kind of gig? The first, the first public appearance was at the school disco. Right. Uh, on a Thursday lunchtime, uh-huh. uh, where we charged sixpence to get in, and the money we generated from it, we used to buy materials for our art club, which we ran after school. And the second public appearance was at the um, a school dance one Saturday night, where I was allowed to play some records. And the first record I played was Dry Acid by The Upsetters, produced by Lee Perry, <laughs> on the Punch record label. He's so boring. <laughs> he knows the labels. I don't know the Matrix number, though. Okay. Matrix number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I played Dry Acid by the Upsetters, and uh, I still think it's a brilliant record. And it went down extremely well. So you, those are my first public appearances, if you like. And then, of course, uh, people's house parties, you know, having a birthday party. David, can you bring your records? So I was yes. the guy in the corner. Because yeah. in those days, the corner, there was a turntable on the floor with a speaker on the other side. Yeah. And you had to sit down, squat down, or sit on a chair and put these records on and off, or put six in a stack and watch them drop. And that was being a DJ until I went to uh, college and um, I was then, I DJ'd at college dances, you know, um, but I couldn't play a lot of reggae, of course. But that was the first time I sort of broke out beyond soul and reggae and sort of play, um, you know, whatever, pop, pop, whatever, the free and... Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, there was an element of DJing, but I never took it seriously. And I didn't actually, and this is the interesting thing, and it's so ironic, I had no desire to be a DJ. The only reason I did it was because I wanted to share the music. So there was a slightly evangelical kick in it. Yeah. But I didn't actually desire to be a... It wasn't, I want to be a DJ, because the whole DJ thing came about by accident. Professional DJing came about by sheer accident. Uh, uh, because it was uh, an actress I was living with at the time, Paul Pauline Siddle, and it was announced on BBC Radio London that Steve Barnard was leaving, and she said to me, "Oh my God, you should apply for that job." And I said, "Don't be ridiculous! Oh my God, I'd never get a job there being a reggae DJ." She said, "Do you know about the music?" You should. I said, "No, no, no, no." And little did I know that she wrote a letter on my behalf, requesting an audition. And the letter came back offering me the audition. I said, "What's that?" She said, "Well, I knew you wouldn't write, so I did." So she got me the audition at BBC Radio London, which led to my broadcasting career. You got railroaded into it. I did. (laughs) By people saying you should, but especially Pauline. Now, we did something a little bit unusual ahead of uh, this uh, episode of Trailblazers, and we went online and said, hey, you know, if anybody's got any interesting questions or thoughts or what have you, um, fire them in. And Martin James, a guy, hi Martin, who I know well, he he thought that your first gig was at the Newland Centre in Holly Wickham, a venue run by Adrian Sherwood's dad. Well, he's absolutely right. My mm. first proper professional grown-up adult gig as a right. radio DJ doing a public appearance was mm. at the Newlands Club in High Wycombe. And I, my, I was, my name was pronounced Rodigan, R-U-D-I-G-A-N, right. David Rodigan. It was called a Tribal Hot 100. Mm. I mean, it's not exactly tribal, am I? But, um, <laughs> so, and, it was, and it was promoted by a guy called Kingsley. Okay. Um, and Kingsley, if you're listening, thank you. And it was an absolute unmitigated disaster. Really? There's a, all these dub plates of forthcoming future heat, you know, brand new crisp biscuits, you know, I kind of show <laughs> these guys that I'm really on top of my game. And I cleared the floor within 20 minutes. <laughs> right. I died a lonely death at the Roots Club as David Rodigan, mm. R-U-D, the rudderless Rodigan, playing obscure records that no one had heard, not right. one hit record. In my tribal hot 100, 
and people I mean there were no phones in those days but people just you know lighting cigarettes and walking out and uh, just just didn't abs- work a complete unmit and Noel Hawks was there as well and he he kept the poster and showed it to me years later I said oh my god I don't want to be reminded but um yeah a learning experience yeah, though, yeah. so and, Adrian and, Sherwood's dad was there right yeah apparently I was told that he ran the venue and that Adrian you know was inspired to sort of start DJing through that venue and start, you know, it was whatever. a major venue I did a lot of gigs at the, uh, yeah. the Roots Club in uh, in High Wycombe it, and, was, uh, uh, it was High Wycombe Community Centre yeah and hopefully and the, the subsequent gigs went a little bit better, yeah, better than, than that and the promoter's the name was Sailor okay well, black guy from um, not from Jamaica one of the islands yeah. and uh, his name was Sailor and he had complete faith in me you know he took over from Kingsley and started promoting me there. I did quite a few gigs at the uh, at the the Roots Club, the, Newlands it was called, yeah. Newlands Club, yeah, yeah. High Wycombe. Yeah, Amazing. yeah. Well, respect to Sailor for carry on booking you yeah. after you clear the floor man, by dropping first... fire when they wanted oh. bombs. Oh, and, and I, but that's the lesson, like you said. You know, you you learned that, that to it's, the, it's the about crowd. them exactly. Play the hits. Yeah. My first residency was at the Bouncing Ball Club in Peckham, Peckham High Street. And the owner of the club was a gentleman called Admiral Ken, who was Jamaican. He had jerry curled hair. And if you don't know what jerry curl is, it's like it's black hair that's been sort of softened. Activated. And looks like it's got brill creamed. Yeah. Yeah. And he wore a cravat and a blazer. And he was always immaculately dressed and snakeskin shoes. And you cut your finger on his crease in his trousers. (laughs) And he would circle the club asking ladies to dance. And he would dance with them like it was foxtrot time. Wow. His guy was so cool. He was married to Vicky, who was in the back office taking care of business. And he was the ultimate host, Admiral Ken. And whenever you saw him publicly anywhere at night, outside a club, he would always have a bunch of stack of flyers in his hand. He never stopped working. He put on that gig, you know, the, the gig that the, the Clash did, the, the, the Hammersmith Palais gig, mm. where they wrote the song about. Yeah. Yes. He put that gig on. So he was a big player. Wow. So I got this job on Radio London, and he... And then Capital Radio, he said, I'll give you a residency every Friday night. This is a big deal at the Bouncing Ball Club in Peckham. So I think it was my second week in, and I was, you know, playing all this. And I'll never forget the Admiral walking up, and he's very charming. He has a wonderful voice, a smooth voice. And he said, right, I want to talk to you. And I have a switch it up, you know. <laughs> I said, sorry? No money, I have a switch it up. It's not work. It's not working, man. Look, find people. And he had this, just, he was so chilled, you know, like a Hollywood actor. And I said, what do you mean? And he just what I meant, man. So in those days, uh, clubs, the, the, there were records in the clubs that the uh, club owned the records. Yeah. yeah. So he pulled out half a dozen 12-inch singles, import singles from America. And he said, now, when this record finished, I want you to watch carefully. <laughs> and with two turntables, so as it came to him, he queued up this 12-inch single by, I don't know, whoever it was. And the place went crazy. And he went, that's how you switch it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, Never but, forgot that lesson. So I yes. did 20 years in the West End at Gossips in Dean Street. Yes. No, we well. Had, my big thing was that Mick Jagger came down there. Oh, God. I, I, I'll, I'll stop in a minute. But Well, no, no. I, I, I'm quite keen to talk about Gossips. Well, I, and I, I, I want to know, because Tim Westwood was collected the glasses there, right? Tim, was, was he collecting the glasses when you were DJing at Gossips? I was given a Saturday night residency, me and Papaface at Gossips, and the glass collector was a tall, shy, mustachio gentleman called Tim Westwood, Timothy. Can you imagine that? And Tim he Westwood. and he and he was a, such a lovely guy, and he was obsessed with soul and hip hop, and and he he just so wanted to be a DJ, and um, 
he would come, you know, when we were playing with the glasses and the, you know, is there any way I can, you know, do a gig here, do the warm up? And he was, he so wanted to do it that we thought, do you know what, why not give him a break? And he said, I promise you, I'll bring a crowd in here earlier. So he did his own little posters and handed them out, you know, real diehard. Yeah. And um, that was the beginning of my friendship with Tim Westwood. He was a very different individual then from the individual he became as a broadcaster. I think there's almost yeah. two Tim Westwoods in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, yeah, he, he became the, a cartoon of himself, didn't exactly. he? Exactly. So he was the glass collector. And, uh, and my claim to fame, of course, was that one night, apart from Prince Buster coming down there, David Bowie and Mick Jagger came down there. And they were, just, you know, moving and grooving on the floor with some ladies. And, and, and we were like, because black people were just being very cool and didn't say anything. And uh, I just thought, I don't believe this. And then at one point, David Bowie came up to me and he said, you used to be the DJ at the Ram Jam Club in Brixton, didn't you? I said, yeah, I, that was me. Yeah, I was there. Of course, I'd never been to the Ram Jam Club in Brixton. I'd certainly never been a DJ there. But I didn't want to make him look like he was a bit of a dick. You know? <laughs> so I thought, oh, hey, um, yeah, it yeah, was me, David. Yeah, yeah that was there. You know? <laughs> I told everyone, you know, Mick Jagger and David Bowie came to the club. But Big moment, that's yeah. where I had to switch it up, mix right. it up, switch, switch it, up. it up by playing soul records because... That's how it was, and that's how it was in Jamaica. When I first went to Jamaica, I first went to dances like a virgin. They were playing Madonna in the ghetto dances, in the garrisons. Yeah. You know, George Michael, wake me up before you got in the garrisons, followed by some big heavy-duty bounty killer dub plate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jamaicans, yeah. that's what people forget. You go to Jamaica and you turn on the radio, you'll hear Jim Reeves. I mean, it's like, we call it train crashing in terms of programming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in those days, now it's, there's so many radio stations in Jamaica, it's nuts. But then there were just a couple, and there was FM and AM. And it would literally be, you know, Jim Reeves, Otis Redding, and then the Maytals. And, and actually not enough reggae, in, in my opinion, but and country and western. I mean, they love... Jamaica was a very different place then. And even now, Sundays on the radio in Jamaica is a unique experience because you just hear these classic vintage soul records that all Jamaicans know. And they've been playing these records on the radio Sunday afternoon and Sunday morning in Jamaica for decades. Jamaica. Yeah, yeah. so eclectic. Different pl- oh, come yeah. on. So eclectic. And interesting that it's the originals that are getting dropped, not the yeah, version. No, the, not the, not version. <laughs> the originals. The originals. So Gossip Steen Street was an amazing... And it was owned by... A, it was the only Jamaican who owned a club in Soho. I mean, Count Suckle owned the Q Club over in Paddington where all the American GIs used to come. Um, and you had Caribas and Conduit Street. Um, but the, the club in, in Soho and Dean Street was Gossips, and it was only on a Saturday night. And that was the, that was the re- reggae club because I had my Saturday night radio show on Capital. So I just finished that at 12 o'clock and jumped in the car and came down to Dean Street and partied till 3.30. We might be going off topic, but should we hear a record that sums up your residency there? Yeah, what would have set that crowd, what would have taken the roof off Gossips at that time? Um, probably Aswad's. What's it called? It rings a massive bell. Warrior charge? Warrior. Excuse me. Yeah, well done. I hang my head in shame. You just crashed me. And crushed me. There's not a lot of people looking. You just mashed me up. Sorry, David. Sad face. Dodgy Dave leaves the DJ booth. Dodgy Dave, who is an accountant, he's a fake red. No, no, no. It was on the tip of your tongue. Warrior charge. Just a quarter of a second. You've got to keep that in. Please don't take that. 
no, keep absolutely. It in. Stay again. All right, Warriors Let's, hear it. Let's have it. I've mashed up David Rodigan in a clash <laughs> by Nick. Trailblazers. Let's talk a bit more, David, about your your visits to Jamaica because I'm fascinated to learn more about your experiences, um, you know, playing those dances and and kind of what you needed to do to be able to build your reputation there. What because it wasn't just about turning up and and playing the right selection, right? There were other definitely other aspects to the way that you built built your reputation. Um, uh, in those dances, can you tell us a bit more about the preparation and and maybe some of the the, the ways that you that you utilised some of the skills that you'd used when you were, were studying drama and all of that to kind of bring bring that together? Uh, there were two sh- strands to how I worked in Jamaica. First was as a radio DJ on, and I have to thank Barry Gordon here. JBC Radio 1, Barry G, the boogeyman. <laughs> Truly 21st century, a pace setter on JBC Radio 1. That was one of his famous jingles. Yes. And he was a household name. So when I went down there in 83, the Capital Radio said, go and do some shows. I, they said they'd never seen so many reggae stars in the car park at JBC Radio 1. Yellow Man, Derek Harriet, you name it, they were there. And I asked Barry G to give a little news desk of what was happening because he was the number one radio DJ. He reciprocated and said, please come on my show on Saturday night and do the same. Tell us what's happening in the London reggae scene. And during the 8 o'clock news, he turned to me and said, why don't we just do a clash? And I said, oh, thanks for the warning. <laughs> um, and we began a clash. Uh, whatever I played, he had to counteract and so on and so forth. And we didn't know each other. But if ever we clicked, if ever two people clicked in terms of their knowledge and passion and commitment, not just to broadcasting and the idea of talking and entertaining an audience, but playing and knowing about the music. That was at 8 o'clock. It was supposed to finish at 9 the clash finished at 2 a.m. Oh, my God. It was six hours, and you could almost hear the cassette tapes being changed <laughs> island-wide. Amazing. And as he spoke for years and still speaks about how the next day he drove into the countryside. And I remember a, a, another clash after that when we drove into the countryside down into Belmont. And I remember going through the villages and hamlets and just hearing the show on a tape loop because... It was cassette and tape that carried the swing. And they all, I say they, someone had a cassette tape and someone recorded it. So that's what led to my popularity island-wide because people heard tapes of this guy from England clashing with Jamaica's number one. And that led to the ultimate clash, which is Barry G versus David Rodigan at the Brooklyn Empire December 1985, and the crowd was, I mean, you, they, they had to turn them away. It was ridiculous. And that was because Jamaicans living in New York, and there are thousands of them in Bronx and Brooklyn and Flatbush, had got these cassettes. So we sold out Brooklyn, and we did those clashes once a year up until 88, 89, and we did a number of cl- uh, clashes island-wide. The most memorable one was up on Walter Fletcher Beach in Montego Bay, and that was in 1985. And I remember trying to get through the gate, and there were th- 
thousands of people that had guard dogs that had security everywhere. It was on the beach. It was, it was ridiculous. I couldn't believe all these people. And again, it was the power of radio. Rodigan versus Barry G, the guy from England, the white man from England that wants to beat up the black man from Jamaica. You know, it's <laughs> like the home team. It was, the ho- it was all that and more. And I remember getting a tap on my shoulder as I was trying to get through security. And I turned and I couldn't believe who was standing there. It was Augustus Pablo. Wow. And I said, Augustus, what are you doing? He said, I've come to play for you in the clash. (laughs) If you knew then what that meant, because in those days, a clash was that you could bring on someone to rep you. So what, they would drop a record or do a PA? No, they'd come and play. They'd do a PA. Yeah, Yeah. 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 right. So at the height of the dance, you know, people going nuts on Walter Fletcher Beach. I said, Barry G., I'm really going for you now because I'm going to play the real rock rhythm. I said, but I'm going to play it in a way you've never heard it because Augustus Pablo is going to play it live. And Pablo stepped out, took his uh, covering off, still had his hat on. And what, because he was a very quiet man, a man of few words, didn't speak, greetings, and that was it. And took his melodic and went... And then I played the record, and he played his version of Real Rock over the instrumental of Real Rock on Studio One. And the place went absolutely nuts. Must have I erupted. Mean, ballistic. <laughs> Augustus Pablo came to play for me in a clash. Well, He'd what's be- even more impressive is that you hadn't, no. hadn't organised no. that. No. It just no. happened. Yeah. And he'd Which- been, I said, what are you doing? He said, I was living up in the hills. So I came down. For this, for this night, I'll never forget. Wow! And you think he was just sort of touched by the underdog? He wanted to like hold the coat of the underdog, maybe. I don't know. Now, I dine out on that story because that, for me, was was a magical moment. But prior to that, I'd actually gone to Jamaica for the first time um, in 1979 when I was still on BBC Radio London. I'd only been there six months, and I went down to Jamaica and um, with Mo Claridge and Dave Henley. And uh, Mo ran a record company, and Dave Henley was a, a photographer. And he s- took, along with Adrian Boot, some of the iconic photographs of Jamaica and the reggae scene at that time. And um, we went down there because Mo wanted to do some business and I wanted to do some interviews. And um, that was January 1979, and I can remember it like it was yesterday, touching down at Norman Manley Airport, spending the first night. Jojo Hookim, who just passed away recently, ran Channel One Records. He allowed us, he had a house out in Portmore, um, and uh, we, we stayed out there. And when I woke up in the morning, I got the, the raw deal. I slept on the sofa. And when I woke up in the morning, I was covered in mosquito bites because they were like, yeah, Englishman in town, we'll have him. And I went out and there was this bus outside. And it was scorching heat. And I, it was a mobile food shop. And I remember having um, buller and, and cheese, you know, the traditional Jamaican, and, and, and uh, a Pepsi Cola because that was the only soft drink they had for breakfast thinking, I've arrived, you know, I'm here. And then we went downtown the first place I went to was Maxfield Avenue uh, to Channel One and uh, Dave Henley said to me oh look 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 that, look, look, look who's over there it's Earl Zero Earl Zero none shall escape the judgment in this time we're standing outside Channel One and then that that second night um, it was the pilgrimage to the place that I wanted to go to more than more than Prince Buster's record shop more than Harry J studio more I wanted to go to King Tubby's studio and that night, as the sun set, we pulled up outside 18 Drummerley Avenue, a bungalow. 
you know, like in Bournemouth, a bungalow in Bournemouth, only it was in Western Kingston, in Waterhouse, a burnt-out, tough side of town, and up the side passage and into the backyard, and there, the inner sanctum was Prince Jammy, as he was then, the engineer in residence, and there was a very cool, quiet, bald-headed gentleman who just stared at me. And Jammy said, um, Tobbies, I'd like you to meet David Rodigan. He's a reggae DJ in England. And I was so nervous because I was so in awe of this man. King Tubby, for me, was one of the most important people in the music business because he invented, well, he invented, he was a, a prime mover in the, in the creation of remixing and so on. And we all know what yeah. he did and the unique sound that he was able to create. But here I was in the presence of the king. And, and, um, and I was very nervously, you know, pleased to meet you. And he was just so cool and reserved. And uh, I said, yeah, I've come to cut some dub plates. Um, and he said, okay. So we went into the studio and I said, how much do they cost? Thinking I'm going to get a better deal, a good deal, because I know Prince Jam. And he just pointed to the price range, the price listing on the wall all carefully, you know, because he was meticulously neat. Everything had to be in its place. You couldn't smoke in the studio. Everything was shining and immaculate, you know. And um, so I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll you know, I'll cut uh, three plates. And um, so uh, how do we do this? And he said, we, you listen to the music and you choose the ones you want. So these are songs that have not been released. So he, he played me one, no, two, three, no. Three. Do you want to cut that? No. And after the fourth one, I said, no. And he looked at me as if to say, you know, is it time wasting? <laughs> and, um, and I said, um, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to cut them. So then there was a slight smile that was turning to a snarl, I think, and I'm quite sure, and he looked at Jammies, and he took these keys out and he threw them to the young lad and he said, open it. And the boy opened this cupboard on the floor and took out this four-track and Tubby himself spooled it up and pressed play. And I heard, I'm a nagamash down Rome in pieces like a man god who is missing... I cut it, cut it. So he cut it straight from the multi-track. So he was mixing it, giving me a different mix. Then you get the dub mix, which is the complete instrumental, spooled onto that. So he spooled and went again. And I was in seventh heaven. And I found out the singer was an unknown boy called uh, Michael Prophet, Michael Haynes. The producer was Yabby Yu. And I cut my first dub plate with King Tubby and Prince Jammy. And that was January 1979. And I still got the plate in a special place in my house. I very rarely bring it out with the artwork of the original sleeve and everything about it that made it special and unique. And that, for me, was one of the most memorable moments uh, in Jamaica, as you can well imagine. Can, can we, so can we listen to that record? What, yeah. So. I mean, it's, it's available. I can send it to you if you haven't got it. Yeah. Uh, Michael Prophet. It's called Love and Unity. Trailblazers. David Rodigan. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.
Trailblazers. It's a goosebump moment that, um, coming out of that. Your first dub plate, you know, cut from the master yeah. in Jamaica, yeah. you know, uh, you're, where you, you're on almost, almost a pilgrimage. And mm. um, we'll come back to Jamaica, obviously, but I'm really interested in what was concurrently happening in London and Birmingham, in, you know, in Hansworth, in, in, you know, all, all across kind of urban UK at that time, which was, and we sort of briefly mentioned this before, you know, I, as, as a, a, a kid um, into music, I was witnessing black kids and white kids dancing together for the first time. You know, that I'd, I'd never seen that. And what united them was reggae music, but that came kind of with punk. And the, the prime mover, I guess, was Don Letts at that time in London. But, but you were already around. So I would, I'm interested to know how you interfaced with that incredible youth spark that was happening then. I remember the impact of Rock Against Racism. That was such a powerful force. And we all identified with that because it was so important. And the music that was played at those events and leading up to those events and surrounding those events was punk and it was reggae. It was Matumbi, it was Steel Pulse. Yeah. Yeah. Aswad had just been signed in 1976 to Island Records. Yeah. So there was this whole British reggae movement that was happening, capital letters. I mean, there's nothing like it now, but in then, because young black kids now are into grime and hip-hop. Mm. But um, in those days, reggae was everything. And it was a direct connection with the West Indies, and it was a very powerful music force, and punks identified it with it big time. And Don Letts, of course, is a major player in introducing... The punk movement to it but the music spoke to them it spoke to punks it spoke to the disenfranchised John Peel in the mix as well of course forgive me forgive me yeah forgive me of course and of course John Peel because John Peel's radio show he was playing reggae records and he turned so many people on to reggae music and he was playing British you know um British reggae bands. Yeah. yeah, me included. You know, I bought Hands With Revolution yeah. because I heard it on John Peel's show. Yeah. And, and of course, we'll have to big up two-tone records, you know, out of with the, 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 the scar scene that happened in Birmingham, which, of course, Coventry. interfaces... Uh, Coventry. Coventry. With, of Coventry, yeah, sorry. God, my girlfriend Lucy will kill me. I'm always, I'm always saying you're a brummy. And, no, I'm not. I'm from Coventry. It's a completely different place. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, yeah, totally. That Coventry sound of scar, you know, inspired by the same thing that inspired yeah. you, David, right yeah. at the beginning. Absolutely. The same thing. And Rico Rodriguez, um, on trombone and of course he was the guy that played on the original recording of Rudy A Message to You by yeah. Dandy Livingston yeah. who was a teenager and went to a recording studio in the Mile End Road having written the song got local Jamaican musicians to do the backing track one of whom was Rico and they recorded Rudy A Message to You and it was released by Benny and Rita King a nice Jewish couple from Stamford Hill who had a record shop called R&B Records and they released that record in the summer of 67 I was 16 and of course the special did it specials are madness the specials did it Rudy a message to you yes yeah, and, and it was Re- it was Rico Rodriguez that played trombone on that one as well <laughs> and Laurel Aitken you know and yeah. his, his major part that he played in it so yes the two-tone scar revolution did you play any of those two-tone records? I didn't really and I'll tell you why because they were already getting caned on national radio. Fair enough. Uh, Jerry yes. Dammers said, uh, the reason um, we played that music so fast because we wanted to get paid quicker. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a, it's a typical of his humour. That's funny. Do you know what I mean? That, that it was played faster than the original Scar. Yeah. And it was played in... It, you see, you, when you look back and listen to that a two-tone thing, now you can hear the punk in it. Yeah. But... It, I didn't hear it so much then, but now I can hear the punk pace within it. Yeah. And because it was being 
caned on daytime radio yeah. and I only had one show a week I was playing British reggae in more traditional British reggae rather yes. than and, and, That's and fair so, enough, yeah. so yeah but I mean but look what UB40 did with it. I mean they it was phenomenal what they did yeah yeah. And so then did you notice your audience get whiter at that time? Not particularly, um, because my audience was primarily uh, a black audience because I was playing in reggae clubs. Um, I wasn't doing what I'm now doing, which is playing in festivals and so on. It's a much more mixed scene. I was still playing in black reggae clubs up and down the land. In those days, there was I, I started to play in Germany a couple of times in the early, in the mid-80s, but it was um, primarily me playing reggae to the converted. Yeah. It wasn't um, beyond that. It didn't go beyond that for me at that stage. My God, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking you probably couldn't see your hand in front of your face for the blue smoke in those clubs in Absolutely. those days. Yeah, Absolutely pungent <laughs> with the smell of the herbs <laughs> and the tobacco. And speaking of which, there's a, a little story in your autobiography, which is an excellent read. And oh, if and you, if um, and if anybody's listening hasn't read David's autobiography, you must. It's it's wonderful. And you talk about uh, being in Jamaica and having some interviews to do. Yeah. It was with Burning Spear. I literally, uh, me, Mo Claridge and Dave Henley hired a car and we drove from Kingston on Saturday morning up to Ocho Rios and we were going to spend the weekend up there. And uh, my, of course, ambition, the sole reason for me going up there was to go to um, uh, St. Anne's Bay, which is where Burning Spear was. And he had uh, the, Saint, the Burning Spear uh, youth lawn, a public community centre that he'd built. And um, I went there in the hope, because there was no phone calls, you couldn't make any arrangement, you just hoped that you'd meet people. And you'd turn up with like a real... T- well, I had a little tape recorder. A little tape recorder yeah, thing yeah. and hope for the best. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And okay. I did. And I did. And I went to the um, Marcus Garvey uh, Lawn uh, Community Centre right. that he'd built. And um, word went out and he turned up. He arrived. And, and this is burning spear. I was like, oh my, you know, I've actually got to meet Winston Rodney. And he was very friendly and we began the interview and he built a big spliff and he had a red and black T-shirt on, hoop T-shirt. And um, he built the spliff and um, he asked me if I'd like to smoke some of it. And I said, yes, I'd love to. And I did. And within 10 minutes, the interview had descended into complete mayhem. (laughs) Because I was on the grass... Spread eagle. In, in, more wa- in more ways than in more one. Ways. <laughs> That's the joke of the show, Nick. Oh, thank you. You're the man of the match. <laughs> and in the end, I was squatting down like squat a madras. It was like, you know, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, squat a madras. <laughs> and there I was, you know, cross-legged and trying to string a question together and laughing at myself and laughing and giggling and, and burning spear standing above me, looking down at me saying... You're red. <laughs> this is a Jamaican expression for you're blocked, you're, you're high, beyond yeah. belief. Yeah. So the interview was a complete unmitigated disaster um, because I couldn't even string questions together. You've got red. Yeah, you're red. <laughs> you're red. You're red because my eyes look yes. like a roadmap. Yes, of course. And of course, the thing was that I was smoking pure Jamaican ganja. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't some bushweed from Shepherd's Bush, you know, yeah, Sense which, Amelia, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or Brixton. It was the real thing, and uh, it it took my head off, um, which eventually led me to uh, a few years later never smoking again. I was in a in Kingston, leaving to go to Ontario. This is in the late eighties, 
And I, I built a spliff in, in the front seat of this Mitsubishi pickup truck. And Arthur Reed, if, you, if you're driving, thank you. <laughs> because by the time I'd finished this spliff, I was flying to Ocherias. I wasn't driving. Well, I wasn't driving anyway. And it got so bad that he had to stop the Mitsubishi truck. It was a pickup truck. And lay me in the back <laughs> on this tartan blanket. <laughs> and I lay in the back of the Mitsubishi pickup truck, oh. driving to Ocherias through Fern Gully. <laughs> and I was hallucinating like nobody's business. I was flying. I mean, I was up with the gods. You're flying through wow. time and space. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Doctor yeah. Who had nothing on me. Yeah. I was in the TARDIS. In fact, I'd left the TARDIS behind me because remember I'd played in Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there I was. And by the time I landed in Ocherias, uh, I had a meeting with John Burroughs, who was my big cheese, the big boss of the Capital Radio Jazz Festival. And we're supposed to have a proper public, proper meeting up there to discuss the lineup, who we're going to go. And Arthur propped me up in the passenger seat of the car. And he said, I'll go and get him. And John came out, and he's a Yorkshireman. John, if you're listening, he said, Oh, David, you don't look too healthy there, lad. You know, you're very pasty looking. What's up with you? Eyes a bit red. <laughs> I said, I'm being a bit Uncle Dick. You know. yeah. uh, he said, Oh, well, listen, don't worry about me, too. You know, we'll meet and, and I went to my hotel, and I literally had to crash out in there. And then Arthur had to sort of wash me down with, with cold water. I was, I mean, it was bonkers and and i realized then that this was uh, this was a Not game i had to quit okay. i never smoked again well never well. smoked again oh wow well. sometimes in life you realize that you've done something which was incredible you know dropping my first acid tab at the milky way in amsterdam was the most incredible experience but wanting to walk across one of the canals was not a good idea yeah. <laughs> and the next day i realized i won't be doing that again there are certain things in life if you've had the, I don't know what, if you'd been foolish enough, perhaps, in some cases, or brave enough, and that's probably not the correct term. If you're listening to kids, huh? at home, kids, don't do this. Um, then then you perhaps shouldn't do it. But I did. It was the 60s, and um, it was um, almost a sort of rite of passage, I guess. Uh, the Milky Way Club in, in Amsterdam, I mean, hey, what, yeah. what wouldn't you do in there yeah. in 69? Yeah, yeah. legendary. Um, it's still yeah, exactly. going strong now. There you go. So there are certain things in life that you realise, you know what? I'm going to let this go and stop while I'm ahead. No, Wise words. No conversation with, with David Rodigan um, can happen without uh, discussion of Bob Marley. I wonder if we can turn to your experiences and your interaction with, with the great man. Well, I, along with a few hundred people, went to the Greyhound pub in Fulham Palace Road in 1974 to watch... The Whalers, that's Bob, Peter and Bunny with the Barrett Brothers on drum and bass and Wyalindo on keyboards, do a show down there. And um, it was a hot summer's night and it was an incredible performance. It really was in incredible. And afterwards, when I came out, um, I realised there was no hope of seeing it as a stage door was a joke. Mm. So I was walking down the Fulham Palace Road and literally, I, I've told this story many times, but this is what happened. I saw a big cloud of smoke coming out of a shop doorway. And I figured the shop was on fire because when you exhale a Ganges cliff, you know, it's big smoke that comes out. You know, it's a cloud. Yeah, yeah, the mushroom cloud. Yeah. yeah, yeah, mushroom cloud. <laughs> and when the smoke cleared, yeah. there on the end of a big one was Bob in okay. a shop doorway with his guitar with Wyalindo. Okay. So I was like, oh, my God, I can't miss this. You know, and I rushed over to him in the shop doorway and I said, you know, Bob, I'm a big fan. Of, you know, I love the album. You know, I was gushing. Yeah. And 30 seconds later, he's like, yeah, man, cool. And this car screeched to a halt and he said, I've got to go. And he got into the car with Wire Lindo. And as the car pulled off down Fulham Palace Road, he turned 
and waved to me from the back window of the car. And I stood on Fulham Palace Road and I said to myself, no one will believe me. Not only did I meet him in a shop doorway, but he waved to me as the car pulled away. That was the night I met Bob Marley. And that was in 1974. Spin forward to 1980. One Friday afternoon, I'm at Island Records looking out for new gear. I'm walking up that old building in, in St. Peter's Square in the corner, that lovely old house. I'm walking up the stairs to the gallery, and I simply cannot believe who's walking down the stairs. It's Bob Marley with a couple of Idrins, including family man Barrett. I jumped all protocol. <laughs> I said, excuse me, my name's David Roddigan. You don't know who I am, but please, please, I do a reggae show on Capital Radio. Please, please, Bob, can you please be my guest tomorrow night? And a couple of people with him from Labrick Grove nodded to him, and he said, okay. And I was like, <laughs> he said, okay. Yeah, amazing. And then he said to me, do you want to hear a new song I've just finished? I've just been working on it. Bob Marley asked me... No, I've got to go to the bookies, Bob. You know, he caught me on a bad moment. <laughs> Do I want to hear... Yeah, of course. So he turned around and walked back up the staircase and took me to the listening room at Island Records. And those bamboo chairs, anyone who's been in there will remember. He took the cassette out of his jeans jacket pocket and pressed play. And I sat there on the sofa with Bob Marley on my left and Aston Family Barrett on my right, me in the middle, listening to this track. And when it finished, he turned to me and said, so what do you think of the mix? Is that mix suitable for AM radio in New York or FM? What do you think? You're a radio man. And I'm sitting looking at the carpet thinking... Once again, no one's going to believe me <laughs> that I'm in a room with Bob Marley and he's asking my opinion. And I said, well, I think, it's, I think that's a good FM mix. He said, OK, you have it as a world exclusive. The following night on Capital Radio, at the end of the hour-long interview, he took the, the master tape out and he pressed play. And it was... Dun, 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 oh, wow. That wow. Was, that was my... Meetings with Bob Marley. Should we hear the record? Yeah, now, now, yeah, now's the time to, to play yeah. Could You Be Loved. All right, let's do it. Trailblazers. come out of, uh, in my opinion, the greatest pop star anywhere, internationally, of all time, because you can play a Bob Marley record in any country in the world, at any time, at any festival. I think it's the only artist that you can do that, literally anywhere, to a Somali pirate or a, or a, or a Thai fisherman or a, do you know what I mean? Anywhere in the world you can drop Bob Marley and people will smile. Yeah. And they will absolutely love it. I mean, you're definitely, you know, in the right game, David. You picked the right, you picked the right music, Play the hits. didn't you? <laughs> so um, you must have been heartbroken when, uh, when, when Bob, Bob died probably not that long after. No, uh, in 1981. And um, I remember I, I spent all night at Capital Radio preparing his obituary. Uh, didn't sleep that night. And um, the following evening it was broadcast. It was a terrible loss, but, you know, there'd been all sorts of stories that he was sick and they were trying to hide it and cover it up and so on. But, yeah, it was, um, I mean, there's a great documentary on him, of course, um, which is well worth seeing uh, that came out a few years ago. And uh, some, a lot of the stuff that, about what happened in, in the, uh, Dr. Eisel's clinic in, um, in Bavaria 
in those final days. It was a terrible loss. And without sounding too morbid, I remember that night at Capital Radio when I walked down the staircase and I saw him waiting in the foyer. And the first thing I noticed about him was he was so thin. And the f- one of the first things I said to him, I said, Bobby, you're so thin. He said, oh, yeah, but I've been touring hard. I've been on the road. I, I remember thinking, well, of course, the cancer had already taken hold. And then he collapsed in the park, jogging uh, in the Central Park. And he was staying at uh, Central Park South about on the top of the, uh, the Marriott Hotel where Chris Blackwell had a penthouse up there. And he was living there, I believe. And, and that was when it was diagnosed. Oh, you know, he's, I think he was, he was touring with the Commodores, I think, at the time. Mm. Um, and the, the tour was cancelled. And, and yeah. so began the... That was the end. That was the beginning of the end of Bob Marley, who's, who, as you said, whose, whose words and music spoke to the world. Yeah, yeah, astonishing. I remember going to, to Portland on holiday, which oh. I, I absolutely love Portland. But well, you made, know what they call Portland? Like, the other Jamaica. Right. Well, of course, because it's, yes, it's very different from yeah. the rest of Jamaica. Yeah. yeah, that's what I love about it. Yeah. But, but I, I made the pilgrimage from Portland to Kingston against the advice of uh, the taxi driver. See, no, you don't want to go to Kingston. <laughs> it's way too dangerous. And I said, I want to go to Bob Marley's house. He went, no, well, let's put it this way. I've got to keep my windows up. And, you know, and this, yeah, this guy from Portland, he yeah, was, no, he was no, so he sort of... want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we went to, on a pilgrimage and I saw that incredible, that house and the bullet holes in his studio and that little tree that you yeah. probably sat with him. There was a tree that he used to just sit under yeah. and, and, and with his guitar and smoke spliffs and just write, you know, and under that football. little... And play football, of course. Yeah, wow. Must have been incredible to, to, to have been in, in, in the orbit of such a, you know, such a great... Man. We'll we'll start to move forward shortly and, and talk about how you you kind of started to explode on the festival circuit and dubstep. I want to get into a yeah. bit, but ju- just before we do something else that one of the people uh, that when we put this out uh, online, we talked about cutting dub plates and stuff like that. And um, so Chris Slade said you've got to get David to tell the Maria Maria dub plate oh. story well, I don't know what that <laughs> yes, story is it's a cracker <laughs> I don't know what that is but uh, I'd like to hear it Maria Maria that was a night I'll never forget um, I was clashing with Mighty Crown they'd just become world champions and they were unknown but they'd been stacking up this incredible dub plate arsenal and they'd unleashed it on the competitors who were unaware of who they were and they absolutely wiped out all the Jamaican uh, contingency in the world clash of 1999 they became the new world champions and it was suggested to me that i clash with them that was november that i clashed with them in the january of the following year it's literally three months later um and i said yeah and everyone said to me you're insane they will annihilate you because they've got everything. They've been packing these dubs up for years in secret, overnight secret, but quietly packing up. So whatever you play, they've got a counteraction. I mean, they are a phenomenal machine, Mighty Crown. They're incredible. And I salute them for all they've done. But I thought, you know what, why not? So I've got this clash against Mighty Crown, the world champions at Hartford, Connecticut, and I've got to do my prep. So I come up with an idea of doing... a dub plate version of Sukiyaki, which is the most popular Japanese song that hit the British and American charts in the 60s. So I, I write a soundboy version, but I need to get someone to sing it in Japanese. So I get Mafia and Fluxy to play back the rhythm, 
record as it was recorded in a reggae beat. And I find through a friend of a friend a Japanese banker, and this lady can sing. She's also a classical pianist. So she came to Mafia and Fox's Dob Studio in North London, thinking this is all very bizarre. And I got her to sing it in English and in Japanese. It's all because of you. Mighty crown, you're dead and blue. Riding on will kill your sound, and tonight you will die. <laughs> It's all because of Roddy. He's going to murder Smarty, etc. So when it played, I said, Mighty crown, you've come from Japan. I don't want you to feel that you're not at home. So allow me to play you a very special dub of a song that all the world knows, especially Japanese people, because it's the most revered pop hit. But allow me to play it to you in a way that it's never been played to you before. And I played it, the English version. Of course, the place went nuts. And, Japan, and, and Mighty Crown, I couldn't believe it. And I said, just in case you didn't understand all of the English, Mighty Crown, here's the Japanese version. You rubbed salt into the wound. Oh, my God. So I was on a roll. Yeah. And they were like, and I didn't know these guys. They're very dear friends now. Yeah. So Simon and Sammy, if you're listening. Yeah. You know, the love is mutual. Yeah. So they're like, sting, you know, because yeah. these, these are the champs. Ouch. And whatever way I'm playing, we're near the, we're near the one for one, which is the big scene. Yeah. And whatever way I look, I look into the wings, I see Beast. Now, Beast is the personal bodyguard for Wycliffe Sean of the Fugees. And he gestures to me to come over. What's Beast doing here? So I go over and he takes me into the dressing room at the side of the stage. And hiding behind the dressing room door, in a fur coat is Wycliffe Sean. And I said, Clef, what are you doing here? He said, I brought you a dub plate of Maria Maria. I said, what? He said, do you know what the number one song is in America? I said, I've got no idea. He said, it's called Maria Maria by GMB The Products, Carla Santana and GMB The Products, the number one record. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know because, you know, typical of me, of course, I just landed a couple of days before. I didn't know. He said, well, this is the dub plate. I've driven up from Brooklyn with the plate for you to kill Mighty Crown. He said, play the second track on the plate. Just play it. So You'd said, never heard it? No, no, didn't know. You'd it. never heard it? So I played it blind, blind from the edge, blind. thousands of people. And the forward I got that night is a forward I'll never, ever get again because the forward came from the back of the dance. In Jamaica, when a, when a song is big, the forward comes from the back because that's where the real heads are. They're not at the front. Yeah. They're at the back. Yeah. Because if it kicks off, they're first out, right? Yeah. It's, as Gregory Isaac said to me, when you go to a dance, always stand near the exit <laughs> yeah. in case gunmen shoot up the place. <laughs> yeah. So a real bad man stay at the back. Yeah. yeah. And that's where the forward came from. The real, real man at the back. And then it just, it was like a, a tidal wave. Yeah. And it just swept up onto the stage. The feet was like fever. And the, it was like, it was tumultuous. And Mighty Crown, of course, they knew the song. I didn't. <laughs> But they did. And they just went, they couldn't believe it. And of course, they were dead in the water because yeah. it named them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they were dying that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No it words. Personalized, no. customized for the night, could never be played again. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And, Absolutely incredible. But I have to, to and as an addendum to that, that there was a rematch in Brooklyn uh, six months later, and Mighty Crown beat me, and they cut the dub back with Wyclef. Right. <laughs> That's how serious those dudes are. They never stop. 
They'll come back for more. But that was the night I got a dub plate from Carla Santana yeah. and a GMB the product of Maria Maria. Trailblazers, David Rodigan. Okay, let's forward wine. We are running out of time, predictably. I, I knew this was going to be a good one. I think this is <laughs> my favourite Trailblazers ever, with the greatest respect to everyone who's done one. Thanks, um, uh, Unlike Nick, uh, David, it took me many decades to see you play. And uh, I, for my sins, one of the things that I'm pr- most proud of is being the patron saint of the Secret Garden Party. And, uh, we salute So, you. Oh, mate, thank you so much. So... So there was I, well, you know, Rodders is playing. Like, what a legend. I'm going to get to see David Rodders again. You know, I'm so happy about this. And there was me in my ignorance thinking, oh, you know, he's just going to drop obscure green sleeves sevens. And, and, and I was really looking forward to that. And then, boom, you drop a Skrillex tune in, in the mix. And that, was just, and that absolutely slaughtered me because a lot of people at Secret Garden didn't really get dubstep, didn't really like it. No. But it came out of my... T- I had the Temple of Boom tent, which is the big dance tent there. Yep. And, and that, was, that was the sort of home of bass music. So me and all my crowd were like, oh my God, Rodders has done it. He's, you know, he's done it on the main stage. You, you basically committed a brilliant faux pas. But of course, the place went, place went nuts. It. it was the Tough Gong. It was the, it was the, it was the Damien Marley one, wasn't it? That's right. Oh, what a moment. What and a the moment. thing was that I was entering the Inner Sanctum because that was the first major festival I'd ever played at. Was it? Ah. Yeah. I'd, not, I'd, only, I'd done one appearance at Glastonbury on that Fire Dragon, um, whatever it was. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. yeah. The brief, and I'd done a brief appearance at, at, uh, at uh, Glastonbury, but I'd never done a major festival ever, 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 ever. And... Um, I was persuaded to come and do Secret Garden. And I was very nervous. And we got held in a terrible traffic jam. And me and Ricky Mackay, my, my agent, we literally got there at, running onto the stage at three o'clock, literally 30 seconds to three o'clock, ran onto the stage, looked at the audience and thought, you know, absolutely froze and thought, why did I agree to do this? What am I going to play? This is not a black audience. It's not a reggae crowd. What am I going to do? My Prince, my King Tubby dub plates probably won't work here. And my glorious obscurities from Studio One on the B-side probably won't work. What am I going to do? And I just thought, get, get a grip, Rodders. Just play some songs, play the hits, mm-hmm. play some reggae anthems, which I did. And then I thought, you know what? Sod it, I'm going to switch it up. I'm- Switch it up, switch it up. You know, Admiral Ken in my ears. Little voice there. Switch it up. And I played Skrillex, and then I played, told the story about how I first played General Levy on Kiss, and they asked me why was I playing that that record and what was it, and I said, it's Jungle. And the place turned upside down. And that was my baptism of fire. That was actually my entry into a whole new world of music heads. Because until that moment in time, I'd been in my reggae bubble where I'd existed quite peacefully and happily for many decades. And then it was just in 2010, 2009, whenever that was, that I was the first time. And I realized they get it. Oh, yeah. They get it. They love it. It's just that they don't come, you know, to gossips in Dean Street or, you know, some hardcore club in Hackney that I was playing to a black audience. But they get it. 
Yeah. And that's when I realized, and it was only when I broke out of that cocoon that I was in and, and entered this new world of, of people, I realized millions of people love reggae. Yeah. yeah and millions absolutely. of people care about it. Yeah. And they love it just like I do. So why was I so fearful of, oh, you know, I, can't, I haven't got the guts to play it? And on Saturday Night Gone, I did a, uh, the Village Underground in, in London, Shoreditch. And... There I was able to do the same thing of playing really hot new reggae tunes, classic vintage reggae tunes, and then go into some, some, some drum and bass. <laughs> because drum and bass was directly connected to reggae. Of course. As we know. Yeah. So thank you, everyone who attended Secret Garden. And I never missed a year uh, for the following years until sadly it, it stopped. Yeah, we, we, we killed it for, for good reason. But, um, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm mind blown by the fact that uh, I, was there, I was there just thinking you've done... You know, every 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 festival, no, Secret Garden party no. is just a party. No, no, a festival. no, no. But I just thought, you know, you are just a veteran of every festival. Baptism that, of fire. That's amazing. Well, fire literally. I was actually wow, that's, that's amazing. crapping myself before I went on stage. <laughs> As I ran up the, the thing thinking, what am I going to do when I saw the audience? So, so there was that festival experience. And then uh, around that era, kind of 2010, I was managing Casper at the time. Tell us a bit about Fabric. Tell us about... Well, without Casper and without James Breakage, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you because those two individuals were key players in enabling me to enter this new world that I knew nothing about. When I got a phone call from Casper through a connection to say, um, I'd like you to do some intros and links on my album, my two sons said, you need to do that. I said, oh, well, he said, no, 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 this is Casper. Mm. This is the biggest guy in dubstep at the moment. He's with Roscoe, um, he, in breakage. These are big, big players. You need to do it. So I met him and I thought of some ideas and I did these intros and links. And I, I was so flattered because when the album came out, he was asked in an interview, um, what was the most important thing about the album? And without any hesitation, he said, I got Rodigan. <laughs> and I and I remember watching that on a, one of these videos and thinking, oh, what? I didn't realise. I'm not. I'm not being coy here. I had no idea that that what I'd done was so important to these music producers. And of course, it was James Breakage who sampled my voice on Hard. And my two sons, Jamie and Oliver, said, "Dad, you know, there's this track called Hard by Breakage. This is before uh, the Newham Generals voiced it. It was just my voice that they put in the middle of this dubstep track." And he said, "It's gone nuts. It's you know." I remember some of the DJs, at, even at Kiss, saying, "Oh, you're on that record by Breakage. You know, <laughs> yeah. Hard record." Big record. And and. Those two moments, the, the Casper album and Breakage, and they introduced me to this new world. And without them, I doubt that I'd be sitting here today. I, I really, really sincerely mean that because that opened the door and I entered a new world. And, mm. and the new world, this is where the, the, the festival thing opened up, presumably, is it? And you found yourself at... Well, because the first real baptism of fire in London was when Casper said, come and do Dob Police yeah, at, at Fabric. fabric yes. And I said, mm, I don't know. And he said, no, no, you know, you'll be fine, come down. And I did come down, and I remember again, you know, in the corner thinking... Oh, and then he took me up the staircase at Fabric, and of course it's pitch dark in there, and the place was throbbing, you know, hundreds of utes, like yeah. 18, just absolutely fueled up, half of them stripped to the waist. And when the lights came up, I thought to myself, 
what am I going to play? Who, you know, what I just I felt uh, same yeah. feeling that you yeah. had at Secret Garden. Yeah, oh. exactly. Yeah, and I came with some props. Yeah, the theatrical side of me kicked in, of course, okay. costumes and yeah. props. Okay. Props are always good. Okay. And I brought an album sleeve with Big Youth's picture on the front yeah. and an album sleeve with King Tubby's picture on the front. Yeah. I said, this is King Tubby, the dub master, who was responsible for doing so much for creating dub music in Jamaica in the 70s, which is directly connected to dubstep that all you guys love. And this is Big Youth, one of the first great MCs, mic men that would DJ on sound systems like Tipitone in Jamaica. I played a classic Big Youth song, and then I played a King Tubby dub, and then I played Welcome to Jam Rock by Damien Marley, and the place went absolutely... Waterhouse Rock, um, tell you about the thing... You know, once I once I cracked it and bust them, the place just erupted. And then afterwards, um, I was told by Sean Management. He said, "Oh, we had a phone call from management. Says somebody, as well, they were like going through the roof, saying somebody played my boy Lollipop <laughs> at Fabric. Who the f- <laughs> did that? You know, management top dudes were like, what, what is going on? And they said it was Rodigan. And they said, Oh, Rodigan, that's fine. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I gosh. dined out on that story. Beautiful. Oh, and I did all... play my boy Lollipop at Fabric. Yeah. And it went nuts. And yeah. along with Al Capone, you know, uh, one step beyond. Da, da, da. Just well, took the fader down and all the kids went. Because all those kids want to do is skank. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know why you were fearful. No, you were well, trepidatious at the beginning because, well, you was. know, it, 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 that's culturally the kids getting back into reggae, but just at 170, 140 BPM on the half beat. You know, it's it was just uh, you know, it was a, bonkers. the wheel turning full circle for you. Waterhouse rock. Yeah. Big youth. Yeah. <laughs> so two things I want to do, Eddie, but before we wrap, obviously we, we, we close on a, a sort of really, really special tune. But just, just just before that, can we can we look at the future and, and what, what the future holds for you and, and equally the, the, the present day and what you've got going on right now? That's Well, it's been an amazing year. Yeah. And, and thank you, gentlemen, for inviting me here to tell these tales. But it has been an incredible year because it's 40 years this year in broadcasting. And... Um, we decided to come up with something special, and we di- we think it's special, and it's, it, it certainly has been incredibly well received. We teamed up with the Outlook Orchestra, and we with Tommy Evans, the conductor stroke leader of the orchestra, who painstakingly took a, a collection of songs that he and I discussed uh, from ska to rock steady to reggae, and he transposed those into classical arrangements with the twenty-two piece. Um, Outlook Orchestra we performed on March 2nd in the snow at the Royal Festival Hall Hmm. which is absolutely incredible that night and we had special guest surprise appearances from Protégé and Maxi Priest and Ali Campbell from UB40 and Winston Francis and um We've done it subsequently at festivals in, in Europe, in Spain, in Beni Kassim at Rotterdam. We did it at Bestival, and um, we did it down in Bristol at Love Saves the Day, and it was absolutely amazing. Let us finish with the question that we ask, the same question that we ask at all our esteemed guests, which is that if the aliens, when the aliens come, because they are going to come one day, what's the tune that you would save planet Earth with if they were going uh, to destroy it? I wouldn't hesitate. I would say that it has to be a song that the whole world knows. We spoke earlier of the power of Bob Marley and what he's done with his music and his lyrics, as did Dylan and many other great rock stars. But there's one song that Bob Marley wrote when he was a teenager at Studio One and recorded as a Scar record, and it was an absolutely incredible record then. And if you listen to the Scar version and listen to the version that the whole world knows, you'll, you'll hear the difference. But within it is the incredible message, and it's so simple and it's so true that without love, we have nothing. 
We have to forgive. We have to move on. We cannot hold resentments. We cannot bear grudges. And Bob Marley believed that devoutly. And that's why he wrote One Love. And I would say to the aliens, please listen to the message of Bob Marley, because it's all about love. One love, one heart. Let's get together and feel all right. What an ending. And I'm just picturing aliens skanking now. (laughs) (laughs) David Rodigan, MBE, thank you so much. It really has been a Thank you so much, David. This has been amazing. A real joy. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you very much. Thank you. Trailblazers, David Rodigan. One love, one Originals. Trailblazers. David Rodigan, most excellent order of the British Empire. What an absolute legend. And it was a joy, an honour, a thrill, and, and actually so inspiring to talk to him, wasn't it? It was inspiring, it was educational, it was entertaining. Oh, man, that was mega. I really look up to... I want to be like him when I grow up. Oh, my God, (laughs) my God. Yeah, we both grow up. And and the thing that I took away from it was... uh, It was really profound, actually, that that question that we ask every single person about what the tune would be that they picked if Mm. the aliens land and wanted to to destroy us. And I feel as though with everybody, with the greatest respect to everyone, and this would apply to, I think, everybody in the world, you know, you pick a tune, it's it's a forlorn hope. Mm. But with Rodders, I genuinely feel that One Love by Bob Marley actually could stop aliens from destroying us. If if anything can, that can. And uh, so, look, to make sure that you don't miss the next episode, which we're going to talk about in a moment, subscribe now with your usual podcast provider, and please leave us a a nice uh, sort of uh, rating if you enjoyed what you heard or of course you can head to Deezer.com to check out uh, the full Trailblazers playlist and more episodes from Series 1 Trailblazers and the next episode of this Series 2 will be the incredible Stephen Malander Mal from Cabaret Voltaire Deezer Deezer. Originals